And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb." Well, those of you who were um, listening, watching the uh, service this past Sunday may recognize that what I just read was the very text that we were looking at together just this past Sunday. We were looking, you may recall, at what is oftentimes referred to as the cry of dereliction, Jesus' cry there quoting from David in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what we were looking at just, just a few days ago. There is so much, though, in that text, the text that I just read, that it really in some ways demanded our revisiting it. And this evening, here on this Good Friday, is a very opportune moment in which to do that. There's so much happening here, these startling events that we read of, in particular in verses 51, 52, and 53. Uh, These verses and these events, these um, significant things that were taking place and recorded for us in Matthew's gospel that oftentimes, because of everything else that's recorded there, we oftentimes just don't give much attention to. We just sort of skate on on by. But clearly, the witnesses who were a part of what was going on here and seeing and hearing and feeling what was going on had to have come away saying something extraordinarily significant was happening given what was going on there, just recorded in verses 51 to 53. These are, you could call them, I said it was significant, literally. These are signs, signs that are taking place. Something unusual happened here with the death of this man. Something strange, something shocking even was taking place with the death of this man Uh, They're on that cross, pointing, these events, these signs, I'll get to what they were in just a moment, are pointing to what was happening with Jesus' death. 
They're pointing us towards these larger, grander, uh, scaled events, uh, things, realities. What Jesus' death caused, what His death set in motion are, are reflected in these signs. Jesus' death set in motion some significant things, things that we would do well just for a few minutes here this evening to consider. His death set in motion some significant things, things that we would do well just to take a few moments to consider here together this evening. Now, what would those things be? What would these signs be? Well, I alluded to that. I'll come to it now. Three things. First, the tearing of the veil. Secondly, the shaking of the earth. And thirdly, the rising of the saints. The tearing, the shaking, and the rising. All three of these historical events that are pointing us towards extraordinary spiritual realities, things that are happening, things that are taking place as a consequence of Jesus' death. So the first of these is the tearing of the veil. This might be the most familiar. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if no few of you are familiar with this, have heard it spoken of a few times before. Let's just look, go back, verse 51, Matthew tells us, and behold, clearly he was trying to get our attention here, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let's just stop there for a moment. The curtain, what do we know about that. From extra-biblical sources, Josephus and some others, we know that that curtain was some 60 feet wide, 30 feet high. It is, was extraordinarily beautifully woven fabric, uh, 72, I had to look this up to this afternoon, 72 plates of 24 threads. Jewish tradition tells us it was the width of a man's hand. So when you see here curtain or veil, don't think shower curtain. <laughs> don't think some little thin piece of fabric. It's you know, just think in terms of you know, whatever the width of the average man's hand was. That's the thickness of this veil. Its function was to serve as a divider between the holy place and the holy of holies there within the temple. No one was allowed access behind that curtain, behind that veil, except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he went back behind the curtain to, make, to present the sacrifices for the people. That's the curtain. It's standing there as a barrier between God and His people, signifying the, the absolute holiness of the living God. And if you will, the inaccessibility between God and his people, even as he dwelled there in the temple, in the midst of, in the presence of his people, there was still yet this inaccessibility between him and the people, or at best you could say a very limited accessibility, given that the priest did have that once a year uh, time to go there to make the sacrifice. And yet, at Jesus' death, at that very moment, Matthew tells us that this curtain, 60 feet wide, uh, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and the, uh, the breadth, the width, uh, the thickness of, of a man's hand is torn. Can you imagine the sound? Can you imagine the horror, the shock 
to the priests there in the temple as they hear this, as they come and watch this thing fall to, to the ground. It's been standing there, or at least some, some semblance of a curtain in the tabernacle system, in the older temple, and now Herod's temple. There's been some kind of a curtain involved with all of this for some 1,500 years. And now it's lying on the ground. Why? Because Christ is the sacrifice. The sacrificial system with the death of Jesus is obsolete. It has come to an end. It has fulfilled its purpose with the sacrifice, with the death of Jesus. We now have direct, not indirect, direct access to God himself. Something not seen since the days of Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Now, direct access is possible through Christ, through his sacrifice, because he is the sacrifice, and yet at the same time, he is also the high priest. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary what the tearing of the veil signifies, what it points us towards, what it represents. Think with me, put it this way. Who is the only person that can run into the king's bedroom at 3 a.m. demanding a glass of water. His son, his daughter, his child. Friends, we have that kind of access, free and unfettered and in full, to run into the holy of holies because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. That should fill our hearts with wonder. You consider even in that moment how these spiritual realities are reverberating into the physical world. This temple is, excuse me, the, the, the temple veil being torn. This should fill our hearts with wonder. It should fill our hearts with humility because Matthew's careful to point it out this way, describe it this way. The curtain was not torn from bottom to top, it was torn from top to bottom. It was God's hands that did that. So it should fill our hearts with wonder, it should fill our hearts with, with humility, and should fill our hearts with great gladness because we have this access, free and full in Jesus. Again, the cross sets in motion some significant things, things that we would do really, really well to consider here together tonight. First, with the tearing of the veil. Secondly, with the shaking of the earth. Just extraordinary to consider here. So again, let's look at it. It's again verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Let's consider what's going on here, the context. Now, it's worth noting that this part of Israel did then still today course it would, stand on a seismic fault line, okay? So earthquakes are not unheard of in that part of the world by any stretch. And also there was a bit of memory as to, oh, the Lord, upon the visitation of his people, there being the shaking of the earth. If you go back to Exodus and you think in terms of the Lord coming down to Mount Sinai and the mountain shaking, just cannot imagine the terror that would have come upon the people in, in that moment as the ground is literally shaking bit underneath their, their feet. Well, there's something else going on here, though. 
related to it being the, the, the effect upon the earth. The earth itself, creation itself, is feeling the effect of Jesus' death in this moment. This was an important point. The, the creation itself is feeling the effect of Jesus' death at this moment. Think with me, going back to Genesis, tracing the, 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 the roots of all of this, all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 3, in the fall, where Adam fails to guard the garden. Adam fails to guard Eve. He fails to guard his own heart. He leads all, himself, his wife, and all of creation, including us, all of his descendants, into this terrible, terrible state of ruin. Francis Schaeffer wisely described this many years ago as all of creation now, as a, as a consequence of that, as something that happened in time and space in the flow of history, everything now stands in a state of glorious ruin. Glorious ruin. So I, I know no few of you have seen that here in this time of pandemic that you can, we can't go and visit these tourist spots and we can't even go to these museums and see these things, but you can do so virtually, right? And so you can see maybe because of a drone or some sort of uh, Google camera or some such thing. You know, they're on the sites of, say, in Rome today, in the Colosseum. You, you can get off this broadcast as soon as we're done and see virtually the Roman Colosseum or the, the ruins of an Aztec temple or the, the uh, Stonehenge or perhaps uh, the pyramids. Glorious ruins. They're ruins. They are not, they don't, they're nothing compared to their original state. And yet at the same time, we get a hint of their glory, even in their ruinous state. That's the creation, the one, the very creation we live in now, the cosmos, is a glorious ruin that we live in. And it is responding to Jesus' death in that moment. Why? Because it was cursed in creation, and Paul tells us, cursed in the fall, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that creation itself is groaning, longing for it to be set free from this curse traced all the way back to Genesis 3. So it's as though with Jesus' death in that moment, creation is shaking in anticipation of the fullness of what is coming. That's just amazing to consider again the spiritual realities that cannot be suppressed, they are exploding, reverberating out into the physical world with the shaking of the earth itself. Oh, how the witnesses must have been filled with terror. How could they not have been? How could they not have been? But consider with me what this represents, what it points us towards, the scope of what is happening. This is not just some, something you can bottle up and put up in a, in a box. This is not just something that was just... Uh, somehow relevant to the people then, or just Jewish people, or just people, uh, just to believers, followers of Jesus as disciples, but this is pertinent, this is relevant to the whole of the cosmos. The whole of creation is wrapped up in this. Nothing, put it this way, push a little further, nothing in your life or mine could, be possi could possibly be excluded. Everything is relevant. Everything is touched. Everything is included. Your concerns, my concerns right now about this pandemic and, and everything that was upon our hearts before that and everything that in the last few weeks has been just loaded on upon since. There is nothing too small or too great that somehow is left out of the Lord's concern. 
And you see that signified here in the shaking of the earth, the shaking of creation itself in anticipation of the great full redemption that is to come. So we see here, uh, we have a tearing of this curtain, we have a shaking of the earth, and one more thing showing us that with the cross, these significant things are set in motion. We see also the rising of these saints. Now, I guarantee, I'm pretty sure, and I'm well nigh going to go on a limb here and say I'm going to guarantee, I don't know that there's ever been a Hollywood film about the life and death of Jesus that touched on this. The rising of the, I'm not surprised given that it's only a half of a verse. Well, no, actually it's two verses, but we'll, uh, let's take a look at it. Verses 51 to 53 now. 50 verses, and Matthew's the only one who speaks to this. But it happened, he's telling us. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Are you kidding me? What? Well, that's the record. So let's deal with it. That's what Matthew tells us. So we can count on that. We can trust it. It's hearing the word of God, so we know this happened. It sure raises a lot of questions, though, doesn't it? Who were these people? We're not, there's a lot of things here, things that we can be assured of and certain of, but a lot was just, I don't know. Who were they? Were these Old Testament saints? I mean that by followers of, of, of the, anticipating the Christ to come in the Old Testament era? Or were these people that maybe between Malachi and, and Matthew and the, what's referred to as the intertestamental period? Is that? Were, were these um, people who fought in the Maccabean Wars? We, 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 don't, we don't know. We don't know how many of them were there. And what... what uh, made you, what was the criteria? What made you make the grade or not make the grade? And it's just so many things to just think about. It. Just so stunning here. And what happened? It's a little elusive, but likely what's going on here is, is that they were raised, if you read closely the text, and, and, and the ESV is a little fuzzy on this point, but if you read the text closely, it would seem that it's, it's not that they were actually raised on Friday, but raised and went forth on Sunday in conjunction with Jesus' resurrection. Okay, what kind of body did they have? Was it like Lazarus? You know, no, Matthew doesn't tell us. Was it like Lazarus raised to then die again? Or are they raised with resurrection bodies and then ascended with Jesus? Of course, we're not told about that. We, we just don't know. Raises a lot of questions. What, by the way, and what kind of conversations did they have when they went into the city? Who did they go see? And did anyone take notes? Apparently not. Apparently not. Lots of questions raised. Lots of things we don't know. But there are a few things we do. There are a few things that we do. In the rising of the saints, again, one of these signs signifying, pointing towards significant things that are taking place in conjunction with as a, as a result of Jesus' uh, crucifixion, his death, it's giving us a foretaste of what awaits. Whatever else is going on here, whatever else the answers are to the questions that we're just not going to know until we meet these people face to face, 
we know that this is a foretaste of what awaits every disciple of Jesus. Upon Jesus' return and our being raised, reunited the soul and the body forever on a renewed earth. That much we can know. We can know something else as well. In this, in this we see very clearly what, what great old, one great old Puritan, John Owen, put it this way. We see the death of death in the death of Jesus. We see the death of death in the death of Jesus. That's huge. It's absolutely huge. Uh, and you see this in the rising of the saints. I can't imagine, I know you can't, none of us can, the shock. We mentioned the, the tearing of the curtain, the shaking of the earth. Now the raising of these saints can't imagine what the shock must have been. But again, again, these spiritual realities that can't be suppressed, reverberating, coming out, echoing out into physical creation. So great and glorious are these things that they happened, and Matthew records them here for us. What do we do with this? What are, how, what might we, how might we understand this and run with this in the coming days? This is grounds for hope. This is grounds for hope, not just you know, wish projection or anything like that. You know, hope in the sense of confident anticipation, sure expectation of something coming in the future that we know is coming. This is grounds for hope. This is grounds for hope. It's also grounds for courage. Courage now, right now, in the midst of a global pandemic. No, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Short, long, don't know. How long is, what is life, what is normal going to look like on the other? Don't, don't know. Don't know. We know this. We have great grounds for hope and great grounds for courage. And we can see it signified in the tearing of that curtain, in the shaking of the earth, and the rising of the saints. Significant things were happening in the death of Jesus there that day. I want to end with this, though, a question. A question I've been asking myself today and a question I want to put to you as well. What do we make of this? And I don't just mean intellectually. I don't mean what do you think about it. I mean in, in your heart. What do you make of this? Matthew, in a subtle way, is putting that very question in front of us here. The centurion and his response, and the, the men that were with him, their response to what's going on. Let, let's look at that there in verse 53. Verse 53, uh, we, we pick, well, verse 54, sorry. We, you read of the, the tearing and the shaking and the rising. And then in verse 54, we read, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. These men, who knows how many times they had participated in an execution, in a public way, in a crucifixion, some robber, some thief, someone worthy in, their, in, in the system's mind of that sort of display. Who knows how many times they had participated in this, but they knew this very, very well. This was no ordinary death. This was no ordinary execution. They are, as, as Matthew says here, they're filled with now, that word awe 
can mean a lot of different things depending on how the context in which you see it. And maybe it means all of it in this context because it's really hard to say exactly in what sense. Awe in the sense of fear. Given everything that they're seeing, heaven's wrath seems to be manifesting itself. It's one possibility, one very real possibility. At the same time, not just fear in the sense of terror, but wonder and awe, as, as the ESV puts it here. Perhaps we see also a divine Savior. Somehow at the same time, heaven's wrath and a divine Savior all at once, all at once here. Here's the thing. We don't really know exactly what they meant when they said, truly this was the Son of God. They could have meant anything from over in this extreme, on this end, to this was a a demigod. This is like one of the Greco-Roman gods. This is some sort of hero. Surely he was that. Surely he was something more than us. It's at least that. But they may have meant something more. Truly he was the Son of God in the sense that Matthew is trying to help us see that Jesus really is. The point being, Matthew is a little ambiguous here. Perhaps intentionally forcing the question back on us. Not what did the centurion think of Jesus. But reader, what do you think of Jesus? Who do you think he is? What do you think the cross has signified and accomplished? What do you think? What do you think? These are historical events that we're reading of here that demand a personal response. And what Matthew is helping us to see is that the cross set in motion some significant events that demand a careful consideration. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us this time to consider these things and this text that's before us. We don't know everything about this centurion. We know it would seem very little, but we know what he saw. We ask you to help us to see the same things. These deep, significant spiritual realities that could not be suppressed, overflowing into the physical realm. Oh, would you help us to consider them carefully, with open hands? Pray in your name. Amen.